You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Wednesday, the 25th of February, 2015. My name is Harry Knight, and with me today is Rue Hill. Hello, everyone. And Oliver Davis. Hi, everybody. And hopefully this week we're going to get the sound levels right. We've had a few emails after the last episode complaining that the sound levels weren't quite right and that uh, Ollie in particular was a little bit hard to hear. So hopefully we've got the levels all set nicely this time and uh, it'll all work beautifully. Everyone was essentially just complaining that Ollie wasn't loud enough. And I'm not sure if that's because Ollie wasn't loud enough or whether they felt that you know you and me were just... Just too loud. <laughs> that is also possible. <laughs> um, how have your weeks been, guys? What have you been up to? So I just watched Thundercloud last night, the documentary about cloud break. I still haven't seen that. Have, have you seen it all? Yes. What did you think of it? It was good, if a little long, I, I thought. I felt like the, it looked like the, um, like the first edit. Like They had a lot of really good footage and a lot of really good interviews, and they had got you know most of the good stuff down and then someone really needed to sit down and, and edit it down to about 40 minutes instead of an hour and 20 minutes yes it, fe- it it was almost like they were going and then the swell was coming and it was still coming in and the swell was coming and it, you know the swell is coming in and it's still coming in and it's kind of like it needed to just kind of get on with it a little bit it was kind of like that zombie army in game of thrones you know they're always just nearly there but not quite there <laughs> it, yeah that's what it felt like it was like, oh come on where's the massive waves but i did like how i did like the the humbling effect that it had on the ct surfers it was quite kind of endearing in a way that that like you've got taj burrow and people sort of taking advice from the other guys who are like the big wave surfers sort of i don't know doubting their own abilities and it was quite refreshing to sort of see some of them looking a little kind of doubtfully at the size of the waves and whether wondering whether they should run the contest etc so i quite like that aspect of it i thought that all the ct surfers they interviewed in the film were very open and honest about it i mean owen wright you know he said he decided not to surf that day i think he had some friends and family sort of saying look you could put yourself out for the whole year and he sort of implied that he convinced himself at the time it was a strategic decision rather than fear. But now he looks back, he says, I wish I had just gone out and surfed because I might never get an opportunity like that again. I thought it was really cool as well watching the wipeouts and the waves from that whole afternoon of surfing. And then they interviewed the people who were out there, Mark Healy particularly, I thought was really cool. And they were talking about waves they caught or talking about wipeouts they had just in like blow by blow accounts. Uh, and the, particularly the wave that Mark Healy paddled under that was sort of the biggest wave that rolled through all day. And he took his breath, pulled his leash off and swam through the face. And that thing just looked like Chopu on steroids, but reeling for like half a mile instead of, you know, just the sort of relatively shorter kind of Chopu length of the ride. Yeah, the uh, they they managed to actually put across the size of the wave quite well. Because what was that film where it's like a chasing Mavericks? I still yeah. haven't seen it, that. It yet. doesn't <laughs> appear that the wave is particularly big. And and as the layperson who doesn't surf, you'd look at it and go, "Huh, um, I, I'd probably give that a go." One of the hard things I think with any film about surfing and Blue Crush, Chasing Mavericks, Point Break, all of them, they don't have that ability to show how intimidating it is being in the water like even just when it's four to five foot of breaking wave coming down on your head how intimidating that can be and so the only way they can do it is the the, the standard operating procedure is someone has to bang their head on the reef underwater <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. To like show so some shocking are a bit some sh- scary. yeah exactly <laughs> but but the, the footage from a lot of that a lot of the footage that was on that film 
it I don't know, it just looked legitimately bigger than any other film I'd seen where like they've got these barrels coming through that are like the size of cathedrals and it looked convincingly large. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do, does it make you want to go there? No. What about you, Harry? Well, I haven't seen it. Oh, but yeah. well, I I I think that having seen some of the raw footage you, beforehand, you know, of, the, of of that session, I think that what you were saying about it, the thing that's weird is that when like Chopu or Jaws get big, you look at it and it looks like a big wave. Whereas that day at Cloudbreak, it looked like a perfect six-foot barrel. But like just first, first glance, if you just saw a, a, like a little thumbnail on a website, it's like, oh, perfect six-foot Cloudbreak. Like yeah, and then you scaled it up. It's like, oh, God. <laughs> I thought there, there was two problems with that as a film. One of them was that the first five minutes of the film, they were trying to recreate how it was that the chief of Tavarua got got the island and it was some sort of like I don't know if it was like folk folklore or whether it's actually happened but it was sort of the current chief's great grandfather went to some island to convert the cannibals to Christianity and then they they chased him and tried to kill him and they killed him on the beach and then his family were given the island but they'd got some of the locals to reenact it all as the narrator was describing it yeah. and they were sort of doing it in probably what I imagine was the clothes that they wear when they do the sort of ceremonial traditional stuff for the benefit of the tourists, you know, with someone shooting it on like a handy cam as they run around reenacting it. And it immediately you just like lost confidence in the film. And then it's the, very the, next, hard. the next half hour of the film, they're just trying to like pull back your, their credibility, you know? It's very hard to get, to do a good reenactment of something. I yeah, feel like you, they shouldn't have tried. They just like it was a yeah. it was a bold move, even giving it a go. It, it's always a bit cringy your reenactment. A really cringy, yeah, because it's going to be. You're definitely not going to have the money to get people who can actually act. Even you, you know when you have like Crime Stoppers or something, and they do a reenactment of the crime, and it's always someone that can barely act, shot on very low budget. Yeah, that, this was like tropical angles. Crime Stoppers. That's yeah. exactly <laughs> what this was. Tropical <laughs> medieval Crime Stoppers. <laughs> Uh, the other thing that was a bit odd about just the pace of the movie was they sort of talked to some of the surfers about the morning of the big day in 2012, then like the afternoon of the big day, then sort of some of the wipeouts of the big day, and you felt like, ah, oh, now the m- movie's wrapping up. And literally me and Maureen, my girlfriend, were watching it, and we sort of started packing up the pizza boxes and putting them in the bin, and then suddenly they sort of went back to the morning of the big day, and we were like, hey, what's going on? And we stopped it, and there's like another 25 minutes left of the film. So it, the whole pace of the film was a little bit odd, I felt. Mm. But if you can get over that, I, I think that just watching the last 40 minutes of the film so that you can see one of the most epic sessions in the history of surfing, described from the point of view of everyone that was there, blow by blow, is, that's just super interesting to watch. You been up too much, Al? I have had a pretty good week, actually. It's been strong offshores during the day, and I went out for an epic surf yesterday. Palm tree. Palm tree, middle of the day. No one out. Very nice. Other than that, pretty quiet. Yeah. I've been enjoying my new board. Uh, Yeah, the Hipto Cryptos. Yeah. I've been having a lot of fun on mine. How about you? I've been loving it. It's so easy to catch waves. I've just been getting so many, feeling almost guilty I've been getting so many waves. You know, Ah. when everyone around you is not getting quite so many, and at the end you start to feel like... You're like a bit of a dick. I, I <laughs> need that. I need that. I was saying, like, I'm trying to just cobble together the last few months of my favourite surfboard, the Almeric Dagger, um, and I feel like it's lost a lot of its volume just due to oldness. And that definitely happens. When you yeah, surf I, I, the board was, a lot, it gets compressed. Well, I, I think that if you add up all those little dimples and bumps and foot marks and everything like that, it probably makes a quite a lot of difference, actually. Um, so I feel like I didn't have that much volume. Sometimes when a board gets really sunk around the stringer, I figure it's got to be losing at least one or two litres. Definitely. Just from where your yeah. front foot is. Yeah, absolutely. 
So we've had two big award ceremonies in the last week. Uh, the first last weekend was the Simmer Image Awards. Uh, Simmer is the acronym for the Surf Industry Manufacturers Association. Uh, they bring in under one roof most of the big names in the surf industry and present awards for various different categories. Have you guys had a look over the uh, the winners and losers? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is essentially fashion and not very much to do with surfing. But well, I but I think that that is the surf industry. Well, yeah, I guess so. Or, you know, you look at any event, we've got the Quicksilver Pro starting this weekend and, and that's the Quicksilver Pro. I sounded like quite a bitter old man when I said that, didn't you I? Did. <laughs> you did. Particularly for someone who is so staunchly a buyer of Channel Islands and Hurley. Yeah, but that's not so much to do with either the quality of Channel Island surfboards or Hurley shorts. It's more just my slight OCD and my desire to have everything <laughs> the same brand so it all kind of looks uniform. So men's apparel brand, Vans? Yeah, but Vans it? just make shoes, don't they? No, they do a lot of clothing and stuff now. Okay. Yeah. Like my belt I don't. Fans. I don't see them around all that much. But maybe they're big in the states. I guess I'm not in the states yeah. all that much. Men's board short of the year, Volcom. Yeah, that's not my single brand and style. That's of not board your short single brand and style. Yeah, tricky. I did think that the hard goods category got won by the the FCS two uh, essential series fin collection, which I'm quite pleased to see because I thought that was a very nice product launch that they did with that. Do you guys know what that is? Uh, what was the product F- launch that the, they the, did? The Series 2. Well, so thing. when they released the FCS2 system uh-huh. for, for plugging boards in, which is the, the screwless system that, that clicks in, uh, what they also did was they released four fin templates, one of which is very raked, one of which is fairly upright, one of which is an app, uh, a sort of straight replica of the 3, 5, and 7 you know, FCS template. They released all of those then in small, medium, and large, if that makes sense. So in, to- yeah. in total, about 12 different fins. Mm-hmm. The theory being that with those fins, you can pretty much tackle any any setup that you need, regardless of your size. And I just thought that was a very nice, clean product launch, rather than them launching with, oh, we've got the Kelly fins in medium, and we've got yeah. the Almeric fins in large. And uh, I thought that was a it was a very nice, clean look. I think that it's really nice that they did that because fins are really complicated, and most people are completely out of their depth when it comes to fins. And by giving them, like surfboards, just the, the signature names that are completely arbitrary, like the black sticks, whatever, or the fanning fin, or the yeah. whatever, rather than just giving them like a number, so you know, like shoe sizes. So I, I think that having the, the set, like you say, Harry, is a really good idea. What they're really doing is they're just systemizing the size of the fins so that you're like, oh, if this guy's 165 pounds and using this fin in these conditions, then if I'm surfing in these conditions and I'm 200 pounds, I should be using this fin. Uh-huh, yeah. Well, and, and, and yeah, systemizing it to where the default setting would be that you would buy FCS's own templates rather than the Almeric, the Almeric template for yeah. going down the line and then the Kelly Slater fin for doing vertical turns. Well, and also the, the, the size, sizing of them was ridiculously complicated. I mean, for, from, a, from, a, from a glance, it was very yes, complicated, it used to wasn't be. it? Yeah. yeah. Well, um, surfboard of the year, what do you think about that? Yeah, the uh, Average Joe by Channel Islands. Channel Islands were very late, uh, in a way, on the scene with, with producing a, a high-volume, uh, rounded outline sort of a surfboard. They had their, what was the Rob Machado one that came out a few years ago? Uh, the Biscuit. The Biscuit, yeah. Which, which won, the fish kit. Which the, the Biscuit won Simmer Board of the Year uh, years ago when, when that came out. But it, it, they then didn't do anything and, and nothing really happened with that, that short fatboard movement. And then lost have sort of exploded out doing these you know all these little short fat boards that a lot of people seem to be getting stoked on firewire have produced a ton of short fat 
round shape. Yeah, rusty. Rusty, you've got a loadout. Exactly the same. And and Channel Islands seem to steer away from it and just carried on doing standard shortboards. And then they've 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 brought the average Joe out recently. It seems to have sold very well. Um, I've I haven't ridden one. I saw someone was out riding one on the beach the other day. Uh, so the other event that we've had just as we're speaking, taking place uh, overnight in Australia, uh, middle of the day for us. Uh, but the WSL are hosting their awards ceremony at the moment. Is the WSL awards the WSL essentially trying to steal the Surfer Pole Awards away from Surfer Magazine and, and get the principal awards ceremony of the surfing calendar under the WSL Poss- possibly, I don't know. I mean, because the ASP have always done their award ceremony and they've always done it just before Snapper kicks off and they've always done it out in Australia. So I don't know. And, and it's it's very limited to what's happened on the world tour. So I don't know that, that that's the case. But what they used to award was just sort of the, the, world, the various world champions and the various runners-up and the rookie of the year and things like that. Whereas this year, they do seem to have pulled a, a few other things. We've got the wave of the year. We've got the heat of the year for men's and women's. We've got the uh, move of the year, even. We've got the um, breakthrough performer of the year, men and women's. Yeah. We've got the heat of the year. Yeah. So I thought that was quite interesting. One thing I did notice just in the press release, which they haven't, is they haven't made any mention of the rookie of the year. No, that's interesting. There isn't. A, they've got breakthrough performer of the year, but they don't have rookie of the year. Yeah, we well, you know why that is. It's that? Dion Atkinson, who didn't qualify for the 2015 season. The rookie of the year didn't requalify. Is that the f- that's the first time that's ever happened, isn't it? I, I think it probably is. Yeah. So because the, there's normally that. one person, one of the rookies gets like two results and then does a couple of QS events so that they don't drop off the tour and Dion Atkinson got that really good result at Tahiti mm-hmm. and then was obviously banking on getting at least one more good result that never happened. Dion Atkinson got Rookie of the Year but it's not in the press release that the WSL have sent out. I can't imagine they would have abolished Rookie of the Year just because of that. No, like, but they're not going to publicise They're not going to make a big song and dance about it because I think it, it, it takes away from the award. Well, I guess so. He could have made a very funny award speech after getting his award and a sort of a, oh, this is awkward. Um, yeah. <laughs> thanks so much. Yeah. <laughs> heat of the year? So heat, what, what, what one heat of the year? So the men's heat of the year, there was uh, John Florence versus Kelly Slater versus Adriana D'Souza at uh, Trestles. There was the pipe final between Gabrielle Medina and Julian Wilson. And there was the Tahiti semi-final between Kelly and John John. That absolutely was the heat of the year. Oh, that won it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, as, oh, that's good. That was one of the best heats ever in the history of surfing. That was a good heat. And that I, th- I believe that the heats of the year and things like that, that was all voted for. Oh, was uh, it? Online. The, that was a public vote. So then, But they're not all public votes, obviously. Uh, I don't think so. Well, obviously the world champion isn't a public vote. No. Um, Otherwise, Blanchard would have won it. Yeah. Uh, well, so uh, interestingly, women's heat of the year. There was uh, the Honolulu uh, final between Tyler Wright and Carissa Moore. The Bell's Beach heat between Sally Fitzgibbons, Courtney Conalogue, and Nikki Van Dyke. And then the Bell's Beach semi final between Steph Gilmore and Tyler Wright. So Tyler Wright, having not picked up a surfer pole, has picked up two nominations for the Heat of the Year, and in fact, one Heat of the Year. She picked up Runner-Up of the Year. She picked up a nomination for Move of the Year. She picked up a couple of nominations for Wave of the Year. Well, I'm pleased to see Tyler Wright getting a bit of recognition that she deserves. Absolutely. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about rats in France. Surf rats? No, they're not, even, they're not even surf rats. They're actual rats. Actual rats. But let me just rewind a little bit. So over the last two years, the surfing 
community has gathered together to make a big stand against uh, GMOs. In December 2012, there was a protest march through Halle Eva, which included, among others, Kelly Slater, Mark Healy, Greg Long, Rusty Long, John, John Florence, Sonny Garcia, Fred Pataccia, Carla Alexander, among lots of others. Kelly Slater actually regularly speaks out against GMOs. Uh, he did so at last year's Surfer Pole Awards and also on Instagram fairly regularly. And there's even a trailer on YouTube about a new movie starring him called Living an Organic Life. Now, in the trailer to the movie, Kelly opens up by implying that cancer and autism are caused by eating GMO foods. He does it in a sort of hand-waving, hey, I'm just asking questions kind of way, but it's, it's clearly and unambiguously infer, uh, implied. This was a sentiment that was backed up by Mark Healy to the inertia during the uh, protest march in Haliva last year, and he said, it took everybody getting cancer and birth defects to finally do something implying that, again, cancer, and in this case, birth defects as well, are the result of eating GMOs. Mark Healy went on to say, uh, all people have to do is look this shit up and you will be pissed. So I did exactly that. And it seems to me that there's three issues that really come up here. The first one is the environmental impact of GMOs. The second one is the economics and business practices of the companies that, that sell GMO uh, products. And the third one is the ill health effects of eating GMOs. Now, the first two are quite complicated. The third one, it seems, actually isn't that complicated, quite surprisingly. And it's the third one and, and just the third one that I want to talk about on this episode. And the reason I want to talk about it in a, in a podcast about surfing is for two reasons. One, because it's so ingrained in surf culture now, everyone in the surfing community is very anti-GMO. And second of all, because as surfers we're athletes and I think nutrition's important and actually being informed about what we're eating is, is, is important. So I had a look into whether eating GMOs has ill health effects. You no, know, it's one of the things that always confuses me and nobody ever seems to bring it up when this conversation takes place is that there is there's no animal land animal that we eat or or crop that we eat today that existed in its current form three four thousand years ago they've all been genetically modified through selective breeding so what you're saying is basically everything's genetically modified now through selective breeding yeah i mean yeah. carrots are meant to be purple uh-huh yep yep that is a very good point and i thought that for the sake of brevity i wouldn't actually bring that up in all the things that that i looked at about gmos and 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 the health effects of gmos nobody ever mentions that and i i understand that there is a difference between selectively breeding two different you know cows or two different strains of wheat that have different properties and hoping that maybe the the they'll you'll get a beneficial cross of the two and that it's a little bit different to go in and and start playing around with the genes with a pair of tiny well, scissors. I guess but, ultimately the result is the same thing, though. Isn't but the, it? ultimately the result's the same thing, and actually it's a lot more ethical to yeah. do it this way than than to breed thirty cows and kill twenty five. Yeah, right. I was going to say to have a load of trial and error and to have a load of uh, of failures. I was interested in the fact that scientists seem to be saying that there there wasn't really any evidence to support them being ill health effects, whereas surfers were all saying, well, you know, like Mark Healy and Kelly Slater and others, that the effects can be can be terrible. So what I thought I would do is is without going, it's so easy. This is such a huge subject, and it's so easy to digress down a lot of different dis, like alleyways of discussion. But I thought I would stay on the claim that's being made very specifically 
that eating GMO foods, uh, which have not been genetically modified by selective breeding, which as you point out has happened over about 6,000 years, but have been genetic modified by slicing the genes in a lab. The, the, the claim that that actually is really bad for you in terms of diet is, is the one claim I'm looking at. So I'm not looking at the economics or the business practices of any companies or, or anything like that, just this one specific claim. Now, Obviously, I'm not an expert, you guys aren't experts, and none of us have got any skin in the game one way or the other. So this is really just an exercise in trying to find out what the actual facts are. I am a big fan of science. I think it's super cool and it's given us amazing stuff like uh, podcasts. But also there's just the fact that, you know, for the last 200,000 years, we've lived to about 20 or 30 years old. And then since we started using science, we're now living to, I think, 67.4 was the average age in 2012. Yeah. So, you know, science is demonstrably awesome. So all of this scientific evidence that I'd kind of looked at seemed to be saying that GMOs weren't bad for you. And the surfing community seemed to be saying... That, that it is bad for you. And I was, I was a little confused. And I, as I was doing my research, I actually fell into a discussion of just a brief back and forth with Kelly Slater on Instagram. Mm-hmm. He'd posted some anti-GMO thing. And I asked him just to give me one study, which was you know the, the most strongest piece of evidence he could find, one study showing that eating GMO food was bad for you. Mm-hmm. And to Kelly's enormous credit, he actually replied to me and he shared a study with me that he felt was strong, irrefutable evidence, which was really cool because he didn't have to. I don't know him. I've never met him. And I thought that was a very, very cool thing to do. Yeah. So the study that Kelly linked to was a rat study done in France at Cannes University. And the study created headlines all over the internet about a year or so ago that was saying that 70% of female rats that ate GMO corn developed these horrific tumors and died prematurely. Mm-hmm. Right, which seems quite damning. And actually, if you haven't seen the images online of the rats with the horrific tumors, don't look them up. They really are really quite disturbing. <laughs> now, that sounds really bad if you bear in mind that both Roundup, which was in the study, and also the particular type of uh, genetically modified corn that was called NK603 have actually been licensed food production since 2004. So they've and been Roundup is a pesticide, yeah. Roundup is a herbicide. Herbicide. So they've both been in our food chain for over a decade. Now NK603, this type of genetically modified corn, is designed to be resistant to Roundup. So the idea is you plant this type of GM corn, you can spray Roundup on your field, it'll kill all the bad stuff, but it won't kill your corn. So that's why the two things work together. Neat solution. Exactly. Now, one thing that was just immediately a little bit suspicious about this study was the fact that, as I mentioned, these two products have been in our food supply for 10 years, and we haven't seen uh, 70% of women suddenly developing these horrific tumors and dying early. It just, it just yeah. hasn't happened. So, you know, that's a little bit of a red flag. The second thing is that the research was published by a French guy called, and I'm sorry about my French pronunciation again in this episode, Gilles Eric Serralini at the University of Cannes. Now, he has a history of idealistic uh, opposition to GM foods. So, idealistic uh, opposition means that, you know, in principle, he's opposed to GM rather than just let's see what the evidence says. So that's just two red flags. Regardless of whether you get these red flags popping up, I always think it's worth avoiding the headlines, actually getting past them and going and looking at the, the actual scientific paper. And that's something that I feel is really lacking when a lot of high profile surfers uh, are coming to the media with a lot of these uh, headlines. 
you know, they're not actually looking at the study. Now, this study was published uh, under the rather catchy title, Long-Term Toxicity of a Roundup Herbicide and Roundup-Tolerant Genetically Modified Maize. And it was published in the Journal of Food and Chemical Toxicology, which is actually a very respected scientific journal. So let me just give you a rundown on the study and, and just bear with me. And I'm going to demonstrate why it's really, really important not just to listen to headlines and actually to look at the information yourself firsthand. So what I found out was that this study was done on 200 rats, 100 male and 100 female, and they were split into 10 groups of 20 rats each. You with me so far? 10 male rats, 10 female rats in each group. Three of these groups were fed different concentrations of the genetically modified corn. Another three groups were fed the same concentration of the genetically modified corn, but after it had been sprayed with the Roundup weed killer. Mm-hmm. And then a final group was given normal corn, but with their water laced with Roundup weed killer. And then the final group of 20 uh, had no Roundup and no weed killer. Okay? Mm-hmm. So this is where the whole thing starts to look a bit, a bit strange, because you've got, of the 200 rats, you've got 180 of them getting corn with Roundup or both, and then only 20 of them living a normal ratty life. That is a very low control group. That is a very low control group. Normally what you would expect is like 50-50. Uh, now, you could argue that these groups are just 20 rats being compared to 20 other rats. That would give you the 50-50 split you'd usually hope for in a science experiment. But then, of course, you've got groups of 20. And usually in a science experiment, in a clinical trial, for example, you'd hope for at least 50 subjects in each group for it to be statistically significant. So I won't go into the precise numbers of the whole study. But basically, the researchers then split each group of 20 into the female and the male. So they then had groups of 10, which was even lower. And then when you see headlines like uh, 50% of rats fed GMO, GMO corn die or get cancer, what was actually happening was 50% of a group of 10 were dying or getting cancer. And then 30% of the control group were also dying and getting cancer. So what we're really talking about here are two rats dying. And that was one of the biggest differences between the control group and the, and the non-control group. Mm-hmm. Now, you could be forgiven for thinking, well, it's still more. But actually, that was at 11% of their corn was GMO corn that they're eating. Now, when you raise the concentration of GMO corn to 22%, you were seeing fewer rats dying. And now, nevertheless, why are so many rats dying of cancer? That is another extremely good question. So these were not just average rats. These were rats that have been specifically bred since the 1920s to grow tumours so that they can be used for cancer research. So, and another interesting thing is that actually these rats rats grow tumours particularly if they're overfed. And it says in the abstract of the study that the rats were allowed to eat as much as they want. And these 70% and 50% headlines actually came because of those 20 groups that each were split into two so actually at 40 groups what we see is no connection between how much gmo corn the rats were eating and how many rats died or got cancer it was just completely random it was just noise in the data there was just 200 rats split into groups of 10 and there was a completely random amount of rats dying in each group so the scientists could pick out any two groups and make any points they wanted they could have picked out the group of Uh, 10 male rats that was having 11% GMO corn where five rats died and then the group of male rats where they were having 22% GMO corn and only three rats died and they could have written the headline GMO corn prevents cancer but that also would have been complete nonsense because the the size of the groups just wasn't statistically significant and there was no correlation between the more the rats were consuming and the worse the symptoms were getting there was no dose response curve 
but the the biggest red flag of this whole study was that they had a press conference to announce the findings of the study before releasing the actual paper. Now, that's quite unusual, but it's not unheard of. They did the same thing with the Higgs boson particle at CERN last year as well. But what is really unusual is that they didn't let any of the journalists look at any of the data before the press conference, and they made all the journalists sign a disclosure agreement saying that no other scientists could comment on any of the data in any of the articles that the journalists wrote. Now, if you combine that with the fact that the study itself was actually partially paid for by an anti-GMO non-profit, the whole study starts to look even more shoddy to the point at which you can basically dismiss it as evidence. The reason that I wanted to look at this study on the show is because Kelly Slater clearly felt it was the strongest piece of evidence he could think of uh, in the back and forth that I had with him. The reason I wanted to go into it in so much detail is because the problems with this study are the same problems you'll find with all studies connecting GMO consumption to ill health effects. Now, Kelly Slater makes the argument that while we might not know that there are ill health effects from eating GMO foods, we don't know that there aren't. And so we're really just doing this big experiment on ourselves. Now, that's actually a non sequitur. For example, we don't know that watching Netflix doesn't make you prefer blue M&Ms to red M&Ms. But just because we don't know that isn't true doesn't mean that it's likely that it is true. Doesn't mean even that it's possible that it is true without a plausible mechanism, which is something lacking with the whole GMO food things. Thankfully, though, with the consumption of GMOs, it's even simpler than that. There is evidence out there, as I found, because cattle have been, have been fed GMO corn for the last 19 years. And the amount of GMO corn they've eaten has been really carefully regulated. And the health of the cattle has to be carefully recorded and submitted to industry regulators. And so we have this fantastically well-controlled observational study with millions of subjects in it over several generations. And guess what it shows? No ill health effects from eating GMO foods, which is pretty much a slam dunk. But, you know, the reason that I wanted to talk about this on the show was because none of that makes it into the surfing community. It's just there's this very simple idea that GMOs are bad. And that's it. And that's the conversation ends right there. And no one is really looking at what the actual science says. Well, I think there's there's that big problem as well within the surfing community right now that there's, that there is opposition to the idea of GMOs based on various ideologies and and misinformations. But there's also the big thing in Hawaii where they're they're very worried about the experimentation being done on you know non FDA approved uh, pesticides and weed killers and things like that. And the two camps have now kind of it's it's almost like that Occupy movement that that happened in London and in New York, where you've got a whole bunch of people that actually have completely different views and opinions, have come together with no one spokesperson, with no one saying what is it we're actually trying to achieve here. Do you know what I mean? And and so there's there's all these people that are anti-GMO. There's a whole load of people that would just like a lot more of the land in Hawaii to be treated a little bit more carefully and not not be a, a an open field experimentation. There's a whole bunch of people who don't really know, but they're going to jump on the bandwagon and be anti-capitalist and, and anti-big brand Monsanto and DuPont and all of those companies. And and the overall message just gets lost within that. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think that this movement would do very well to separate these three points, you know. Yeah, uh, I agree. Is, is, is this harmful for the environment? That's one question. Are GMOs healthy or not? 
I mean, the science seems to be pretty conclusive on that one. It seems to be the, the simplest one to answer. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, what are the shady business practices of some of the companies that are selling GMOs? Again, a completely different issue. And I, yeah. I think it's worth separating these up. Before we get a ton of emails from people telling me that uh, GMOs are evil and terrible and really bad for you and they know people that have got ill and eaten GMOs, what I'd like to say is this. Uh, first of all, I wanted to put out there in the surfing community what the scientific consensus is. And as far as I know, and I have done quite a bit of research, this is just a scientific consensus. There is no harm in GMOs. Now, if anyone out there is aware of, of peer-reviewed uh, statistically significant replicated scientific studies that show that GMOs are harmful to human health to eat. I would be really interested in seeing those studies and I would, you know, I'd be very happy to totally switch what I'm saying. I, I'm not trying to put out my opinion. I'm just trying to put out the scientific opinion to the surfing community because the opposite opinion seems to have been given so much airtime. So that's just, that's one thing that I would just like to say on the subject. The second thing I'd like to say, and this is more just a personal opinion, I guess, a kind of an ethics thing, but one of the things that, that Mark Healy and Kelly Slater said, which is implying that autism and birth defects and cancer as well were caused by eating GMO foods. Raising a, a child with autism or with a birth defect is really tough. You know, it's mm-hmm. really hard. And then having someone imply that it might be your fault that they're like that because of what you chose to feed your kid or because of what you chose to eat while you were pregnant is a, a really awful burden of guilt to put on a parent. Uh, when it's especially when it's it's not based on any good evidence, so I just thought that that was worth putting out there. Um, I guess the take home from all of this is, if you want to know about surfing, speak to surfers. If you want to know about science, I'd rather listen to Neil deGrasse Tyson. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. So the 2015 contest season is well upon us now. And this weekend sees the start of the World Championship Tour again in Snapper Rocks in Australia. You guys pretty excited about it? Very excited. I can't wait to be sitting on the sofa with a good excuse not to do any work and the dulcet tones of Joe Trapel lulling me <laughs> into a soft sleep. Who's your, uh, who's your pick for this year? What, for this, of the whole thing or just for the contest? Both. Well, I just want to see John John do well. Yeah. I, I want to see John John cool. and Tyler Wright just dominate. Yeah. That'd be pretty cool. And how about for, for Snapper? Oh, that's tough. Fanning. Have you guys seen the footage recently? That that little typhoon swell that it, came through? It almost seems like it almost seems like they have amazing swell before the contest waiting period and then the last then two years it's been diabolical. It's uh, it's not looking good for no. this year. And they do, I mean the the swell that they had last week, my god, it looked good. Yeah, Steph Gilmore posted some amazing photos of her getting really barreled. Oh god, it looked amazing. So yeah, anyway, the the, the contest season's picking up and uh, next episode I'm sure we'll have a little rundown of the Snapper Rocks event for you. Uh, We'll be tuning in to uh, watch the event, and I'm sure that uh, some of you guys will be as well. So I thought it'd be fun to just have a little dive in on the Fantasy Surfer Leagues. I was just going to ask you, are you going to be playing Fantasy Surfer? Yeah, so I've got my teams ready, but we've got the two different competing Fantasy Leagues fully up and running now. We've got the WSL's Fantasy League, and we've got the Surfer Magazine Fantasy League. Why don't you give the listeners a quick rundown on how Fantasy Surfer works for Fantasy Surfer Virgins? Well, that's what I was going to do because the two systems are actually quite different. The uh, Fantasy Surfer, which is run as a part of Surfer Magazine, has been around for quite a long time and it's on the very basic system. It's a, a nominal monetary value 
applied to each surfer based on how well they're doing over the season or, or you know right now at the start of the season how well they did last year and you have a limited budget to build a, a team of eight, it's five in the women's and, and eight in the men. And then based on how well those competitors do in the event, you get a certain amount of points. And then over the season, your points accumulate and hopefully you win. What do you win if you win? I think the winner wins a week-long stay at the Turtle Bay Resort in Hawaii, oh, okay. which is pretty cool. The WSL one is much newer. They they launched it last year and they didn't launch it with a lot of fanfare. And I think people have sort of slowly been ticking. They've they've put given it a bit more hype uh, in the run up to this event. Their one is much more stat based. You have uh, the surfs are divided into three tiers: the A, B, and C squads. The A tier surfers being the very highest ranked, uh, the top guys. Uh, there's about eight of them, and you have to pick two. There's then the middle half of the uh, tour uh, are divided into tier B and you need to pick four of those guys and then the, the bottom quarter are tier C and you have to pick two of those guys. So you're, you're, you're very forced into picking from certain categories. There's no monetary value applied to any of them but they're very stat heavy on what you're picking up. So when you're looking at the person, you're looking at uh, what percentage of people have chosen that surfer as part of their team, their average heat score, their maximum heat score. The thing I think they've done quite well is that what you score is based on their on the surfer's heat score as they go through. So if they advance, but they only advance with a five-point heat total, then at the end, even though your guy did get through, you don't actually get as many points as if you had someone on your team who fell, but fell with a 19-point heat score. They haven't announced any kind of prizes as yet for the WSL one. It seems to just be a bragging right. Bear in mind that last year, all everyone at Surf Simply was playing Fancy Surfer against each other. And the person who won was Laura, who's the only person who doesn't surf and knows nothing really about competitive surfing. And she just picked people at random, didn't change them all year and won. Which makes me feel like the Fancy Surfer is going a little bit like the stock market. The best, the best I ever did was the time I didn't change anyone. And it just <laughs> rolled on from the Gold Coast to Bells Beach and I won. Out of our group, I won. Yeah. Remember that? Yep, it's so uh, Ollie and I are both preaching a level of apathy. Which it's uh, it's it is it feels a bit stock market. However, that said, our good friend Sam Wackerly got second place, and he is a man that studies the stats yeah. endlessly. Yeah, that's and what puts an enormous surfer. amount of thought he, into he, his picks. So he he got second place. So yeah. that's what happens when you're a surfer that lives out in Dubai. Yeah, you've got a lot of time on your hands. Oh, yeah. So yeah, we're going to be playing um, on the fantasy surfer and on the wsl fantasy league um i've set up a little clubhouse in both websites called surf simply podcast so if anyone does want to play along then um, go along build a team uh, the one thing you do need to do is you need to have your team uh, finalized before the first heats hit the water because once once the people are in the water you can't change your team are we going to have one team for the three of us or are we going to have a team each no, no, no. Well, we could have a, a podcast team that we debate about and, and pit together, but I've got my own personal team that's in the Surf Simply podcast I kind of feel like you, I kind of feel like I want you to pick my team for me. Well, I feel like honest. you've got the system, you've got your head wrapped around the complexity. No, the I did terribly last year. Did you have John John on your team? I mean, I had him for some events. You can get quite into it, can't you, with the previous wins and losses and the stats, the heat stats. Well, this You've got to get quite keen on it, though, haven't you? You've got to get quite into it. Sam Wackley's someone who might get into that. Personally, I can't get too... You've got to be quite thorough with the statistics to actually for it to make a difference. <laughs> and a lot of the time I'm thinking, oh, cool, all right, he's regular-footed, he'll probably win Gold Coast. <laughs> well, I think that's fair enough. Yeah, like, like I, most of my team are regular-foots. Yeah, 
but that's about as far as I that's about as deep as I go in terms of being a pundit. Yeah. One of the nice things that I have found with playing the fantasy surfer is it does give me a lot more interest in some of the lower ranked, the more blue collar surfers on the tour because normally when the event's on, all I'm really looking for is oh when's when's Kelly's heat, when's John John's heat. And I tune in for those and I don't particularly watch anything else. Whereas because both of these systems, whether it's the monetary uh, system or the, the tier-based system, you're forced to pick guys from the bottom of the tier and from the middle of the tier, which means that suddenly you're a lot more interested in that heat. That In Adam Melling. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Adam Melling. He was picking Adam Melling. I feel like we should choose one system of Fancy Surfer and stick with it. We should either go Surfer Magazine or WSL. I feel like at the moment we're the people who've got a Betamax and a VHS video recorder. We've always done the, the uh, Surfer Magazine one. Well, that's only because the other one didn't exist. Uh, now, my personal feeling is that the WSL are going to throw a lot more behind their fantasy league than Surfer Magazine are. So I feel like you want to go on board with the WSL. I'm more inclined towards the WSL and I prefer the, the amount of, of stats that they're putting forward and things like that. It's a very easy system to use. All right. Let's do that then. Plus, Let, let's let's have a podcast team on the WSL one, and then we'll have listeners play against us. And maybe if we get to the end of the year, and one of the listeners has beat us, we'll come and have them as a guest on the podcast. You're going to fly us all the way to wherever they are <laughs> to record an episode of a podcast, or we'll have them on Skype. Oh, uh, we'll <laughs> do that. Okay, so if anybody would like to play along with us, go on to the Fantasy Surfer leagues. And have a little look up through the, I think they're called groups on the WSL and they're called clubs on the Fantasy Surfer. And do a little search for Surf Simply Podcast and you will find us. The forecast for the coming weeks, we've got a lot of action happening again in the North Atlantic. I feel the North Atlantic has been very busy recently. But there's again, there's a big low pressure coming in through the through the North Atlantic. There's a lot of swell, but a lot of wind. The east coast of the UK looks like it might be quite good. The low pressure is going to pass over the top of Scotland. And off the back of it, there's actually going to be a bit of swell pumped down through the North Sea. So possibly the east side of England, maybe even down into uh, Germany and Holland. Uh, there might be a little bit of swell. And our old friend Morocco and the Canary Islands will probably be clear of the worst of the wind. Uh, in the Indian Ocean, there's a typhoon spinning around just off Madagascar. It's not generating a ton of swell, but it is messing up uh, a longer period ground swell that's headed for Indonesia and Oz. It's set to arrive early next week, but it's it looks like it should punch through the, the typhoon okay and arrive pretty clean. We've then got a whole run of smaller swells running through, heading for Australia and New Zealand, but nothing nothing that looks amazing for the Quicksilver Pro. It's all a little bit too west. I don't know if it's going to fully wrap around and get in, but a lot of those swells are then going to develop. They're going to run through past Australia and New Zealand and then expand out into the Pacific, and it looks like we've got a little run of southern swells coming up towards Central and Southern America over the next couple of weeks, which should be pretty exciting. On the contest schedule, we've got the... Quicksilver Pro on the Gold Coast for the men's and the Roxy Pro for the women's kicking off this weekend on the 28th and running through until March 11th. So quite a nice big window for that event. So the next episode that we do is going to be sort of halfway through the waiting period of the Quickie Pro or towards the end of the waiting period. So we should have some nice juicy Quickie Pro gossip for you next time uh, round, listeners. Yeah, I think the Quicksilver Pro should probably have wrapped up by the time we, uh, we next do an episode. We are also getting very close now to the end of the waiting period for the last couple of big wave 
tour events and there is nothing particularly on the horizon that looks like it's going to set it off so it looks like the Toda Santos and the Jaws event might run through without actually happening oh, that's a shame and no Eddie either and no Eddie no we're getting very close to the end of the Eddie window Okay, ladies and gents, that's all for this week. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I hope the sound quality has been a little bit improved from the last episode, and I hope we'll see you again next time around. But for now, that's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Take care. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply Coaching Resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.